0: I believe professional development leads to success, but it's hard to fit that into your busy life, and that's why I'm bringing you 24 experts who are the top in their field. They're going to help you become a higher-performing product manager or product leader, and it gets even better. It's free, and you don't even have to travel anywhere. I'm creating the Everyday Innovator Summit, a virtual online conference with 24-plus experts who are sharing what is working in 2020 for product professionals. I just opened the early bird registration for you. Take a minute and register now for free at theeverydayinnovator.com slash summit. In the summit, you'll discover up-to-date skills every product manager and product VP needs to create products customers love, have more influence in their organization, and generate more revenue for their company. Register now and you'll be able to join the virtual online summit from the convenience of your office or home, No traveling to a stuffy conference facility, pretty important right now, but you'll get all the tips and insights that you need for more success in 2020. Sign up now for free at theeverydayinnovator.com slash summit. Welcome to the Everyday Innovator podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so that we can all create products that our customers love. Now, there are different types of product managers, and not all of us think that they are building the future. My question is, if you don't build it, who will? Personally, I think product managers are the best equipped for building the future, but that can sound like a pretty daunting challenge at first. If it sounds that way to you, keep listening as the founder of TrendHunter, Jeremy Gucci shares what you need to do to help your organization build the future. TrendHunter is the world's largest, most popular trend community, leveraging big data, human researchers, and AI to identify consumer insights and identify opportunities for the world's most innovative companies. Now, if you hear anything along the way you want to go back to, we got you covered. We take notes for you. That's also a very easy way to share insights with others, other product managers. And you'll find those notes at theeverydayinnovator.com 273. And also go there to check out a bonus question that is not in the interview, but you'll find a written summary of it. We asked Jeremy, what are the big mega trends that are driving businesses now? Go check it out, theeverydayinnovator.com 273. Now, let's talk with Jeremy. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining the Everyday Innovators. Oh, thanks for having me on. So I think trends are really important, and you know a lot about this. And every product manager and innovator recognizes this, and the ability to see the future just sounds like magic. And as the CEO at Trend Hunter, you actually try to deliver on that magic. Tell us how that came about, how you do that.
1: Sure. So, uh, I mean, here we are experiencing history's highest rate of change. Got it. That's not really a secret. But uh, what is happening is that people are starting to realize that so often we're missing ideas that are close within our grasp. People are failing to adapt. And the clues to adapt, the clues to your next opportunity are right in front of you. It's the trends. And there are a lot of different strategies and tactics and techniques one can use, to extract better thinking, more accurately predict what's next. But uh, too often, people don't put in the effort or get trained on what you need to do. And so that's uh, what uh, my company and, and career has been all about. How do you put in the effort to make sense of all the noise, decode the chaos, and, and figure out what's next?
0: Okay, cutting through the noise is really important. Uh, we were just chatting a moment ago, and you talked a little bit about what it was like growing up with your father and kind of how you sure. learned into this. I thought that was a great story.
1: Oh, well, my dad was a serial entrepreneur. Actually, in my last book, Better and Faster, I, I wrote all about his story, and I thought a little bit more about how it connected to me. And, and you know, when I, I I grew up, um, uh, it's actually a, well, I'll give you an extra little part that adds a little emotion to it. But uh-huh. when I was writing my book, Better and Faster, my, I handed it in, and, and my publisher looked at it and said, "Uh, I, I like eight, page eighty-six. It's the page on your dad. But you know, why didn't you talk about him any other place? It explains everything you've done." go back and interview your dad. And then I, I went back and I interviewed my dad and then I uh, asked him all the questions about how he brought me up to be an entrepreneur. And then seven days after I interviewed him, he had a heart attack and he died, hmm. which was devastating. But then when I look back at it, I realized if I knew how to spend my last little bit with my dad, how would I want to do it? Interview him, ask yeah, him all the questions. Exactly. And yeah, so I, I think
0: I, many of said, us would like to have the opportunity, right?
1: So, So that caused me to be a bit more introspective, hence mm-hmm. our conversation earlier about, you know, gr- growing up and, and, and how kids are a reflection of their parents. In my case, my dad wanted us, my sister and I, to be little entrepreneurs, and we had an exercise where we would flip through all the magazines. It could be on cars, trucks, fashion, didn't matter, and we'd flip to the section with new inventions, and he'd say, what do you think about that idea? What do you think about that idea? What about that idea? And, and how would we make it better? What parts mm-hmm. do we need? And then we'd actually make the prototypes. And that meant I wanted to be an entrepreneur so bad, but so badly that I could never figure out something that made me happy enough to pursue. That leads a person to the world of innovation where you're uh-huh. just figuring out how to find ideas. And then in 2005, before YouTube, before Facebook, I coded up Trend Hunter as a sort of recreation of that magazine exercise with my dad. I made a place where people from around the world could share business ideas, Because I thought maybe some trend hunter in Tokyo or a trend hunter in South America will submit the little idea that would inspire me. And what I didn't expect is that it would end up getting billions of views and lead us to work on thousands of projects. So my career has interestingly been to never pick what to do and instead help other people uh, ideally find what's their, their calling.
0: That's a good application of what, you know, for many of us, we look at something that is so hard, but probably comes naturally to the person doing it, right? And your ability and the ability that you've created for your team to spot trends, to cut through the noise and identify what is meaningful, uh, now is helping others with that. So that's very encouraging. And that doesn't have to be a mystery, right? There, there, there is some um, science behind this to help. And you have a new book that dives into some more details called Create the Future, Tactics for Disruptive Thinking. There it is on the video. Um, And if people are listening to this on the day the podcast came out, the book is actually available tomorrow. Uh, That should be March 10th, but uh, you can certainly go and order it today. Um, So this book talks about a lot of topics, but there's a key framework in it to kind of pull everything together. And I'll put a graphic of that framework in the show notes so everyone can see that. And I thought I'd just talk through it real quick and then ask you to kind of pull this apart and give us the details. In the framework, on the the bottom level, you have the ability to change. And then on top of that, you put the culture of innovation. And then there's kind of a, looks like a sequence of three columns with the opportunity hunting flowing into rapid prototyping and then that flowing into infectious messaging. Um, I, I, just by the framework itself, I like the elements because I recognize those elements are what we do in innovation. Can you take us through kind of sure. the, the
1: meat of that? Well, I think if you thought about what it takes to innovate, you might boil down To just one part, which is this whole trend spotting and finding an idea. But realistically, you find an idea or an insight, and then from there, it takes a lot of time to iterate and make something that's ugly and awkward actually have value and and connect. And then you need to be able to message your idea, because even if your idea is great, so many of the most wonderful inventions in the world have failed because people couldn't communicate it. So that's the three elements on the top. But before you even get to your lovely innovation, you need a culture of innovation, an ability to have an environment where people can fail and feel urgency and connection to the customer, all those wonderful mm-hmm. little things that add up to enable things to happen. Those four elements were part of a book that I wrote a decade ago, uh, a bestseller called Exploiting Chaos. And I, it was actually it was 2008. And I wrote the book right before the world became very chaotic. Huh. Uh And uh, then I suddenly was in the right place at the right time. I became the chaos guy. started getting invited by CEOs to help them in their chaos, and one leads to another, and that that became my career. But after working with so many different brands and people, I realized that what my framework was missing, the mistake I'd made, was that equally important to all of those parts is the ability to change, Uh and that kind of underlies everything. So half of the book, the the new part, this book, Uh, is actually about how to make change happen and the simplicity that we get caught in a groove. It doesn't mean you're going to fail. It doesn't mean you'll be disrupted automatically. But the more successful we are, the more we get caught into the groove of repeating past decisions Mm -hmm. and, and missing out on the other pathways that are so close within our grasp.
0: Okay, so the first thing there's the ability to change is recognizing, and I think every organization does this as we grow and and scale, we tend to repeat the decisions that made us successful in the past, and uh, just recognizing that is a big part.
1: Yeah, there's a a story that I like as a metaphor, and it's the the idea of rocket ships and and horses. In fact, (laughs) rocket ships and and horses' butts, if you really want to be intrigued by it. (laughs) And if you understood rocket ships and horses' uh, butts, you'd actually understand everything you need to know about innovation and change. And it is the mystery that NASA's solid rocket boosters are the width of two horses, four foot, eight and a half inches wide. And they're not that width coincidentally, they're that width specifically because that is the width of two horses. And if you really want to figure this mystery out, you actually have to go back to the era of the Roman Empire. And back in the Roman Empire, the Romans controlled the land, they had the most territory, and they patrol that territory with the two horse Roman war chariot. And the war chariot tore up the highways of europe creating ruts and if you were a little farmer driving your wagon your wagon wheel would get caught in a rut it would break and so if you were smart and you were making your next wagon you'd think about how to make it the right width you'd measure the width of the ruts and you'd find out they're four foot eight and a half inches wide so pretty soon all the wagons are four foot eight and a half inches wide (laughs) Then we start making wagonways that haul gold out of the mines and we put them on rails that are four foot eight and a half inches wide. The Europeans then come out with trains and put them on tracks that are four eight and a half. Americans have trains that aren't connected to the European tracks, but they make the width four foot eight and a half inches wide. We try a couple widths here and there. It's true, there are some other widths that are tried, but when we gut all the tracks around the world for bigger, bad, or faster trains, we put them on tracks that are four foot eight and a half inches wide. And now we get to the end of the story, which is that when NASA needs to ship the solid rocket boosters from Utah down to Florida, they have to put them on tracks that are four foot eight and a half inches wide. Uh-huh. Now, truthfully, the solid rocket boosters overlap the track a little bit, but it doesn't change the fact that they're still dependent on the width of two horses' butts. And it shows us that we're more dependent on past decisions than we like to admit. And everyone wants innovation and change to happen But realistically, uh, not everyone breaks from the path. So we're Mm -hmm. all on a path. But the question is, what other pathways do you have that are so close within your grasp?
0: Yeah, it's a really important topic, and we'll have to leave the details either for another conversation or for people to explore in your book. But recognizing that we need to have this ability to change is key. Um, and I know from – I saw this in your book, and I've seen the studies many other places, that the, the vast majority, depending on the study, 93 to 97% of CEOs say we need innovation. And yet they don't really have a mechanism to not only just innovate, to be, but to recognize how to change.
1: Sure. And I mean, uh, I think that that speaks, that sort of disconnect speaks to the potential of all the listeners uh, of the Everyday Innovator, because uh, you and I and most people didn't necessarily get a degree in innovation. That's not really been a specialty. And we have an an accountant and a finance person and all these people that are trained C-level, C-suite in in every organization in, in fields that are regulated, that have professional people that have studied this forever. But innovation is weirdly super important, and yet people that are innovating typically haven't gone through training or programs or certifications. Mm-hmm. And, and so you're in this weird little disconnect where every CEO wants innovation to happen. And yet, uh, especially from our research, we would see that most people or about half of people in organizations really feel ill-equipped to innovate. And uh, about half of people in our studies would say that they don't feel their organization has the tools to turn ideas into reality.
0: Right, exactly. And I love this grounding and the impact of horses' butts. And the, just, it's a great picture of, yeah, making, making new decisions, doing something new is really challenging. Um, my, I tell people my PhD is in innovation because I studied that in all my courses. But there isn't a, you know, at that time, certainly there, there wasn't a program in that, right? So it's actually organizational management. But um, you're right. It is hard to get real education. And even if you do get the real education, we have this other problem that we can't just barge in and tell an organization sure. how to innovate, because there's this culture thing, which is the next element of your framework. Um, tell us about how culture of innovation fits into this.
1: Well, I think we generally get that culture underlies uh, strategy. You hear the quotes, like the Drucker quote, cultured strategy for breakfast. And, but what I've found in, in my two decades of trying to help organizations innovate is that... Um, there's a difference between just saying go fail, go innovate, make a culture of innovation and tactically knowing what to do. So what we've spent is uh, a lot of time working with our clients like Disney or Adidas uh, to actually figure out what they're doing tactically. So I'll give you a couple examples to fast forward it. Let's take the concept of failure. Go fail. Uh-huh. Well, I don't know. Cool. I'd like the guy on the other team to fail. I get that we need it for the company, but I don't want it personally... How do you encourage it actually? What are the tactics? So our clients at Adidas, they will actually host a project funeral to celebrate your ideas that didn't work. Uh, Our client who runs innovation at Staples will give you a written permission slip to fail, meaning we believe in you. You're the one that's going to do this. Uh, We get it. You're going to have a rougher year than us, but it's important for all of us. And I think that understanding more of these tactics for your culture is one of the things that um, uh, people are hungry for Mm -hmm. right now. We're bought into the world of disruption and innovation. Cool, but how do we do it?
0: Yeah, you have to kind of give permission to people to, to know that it's okay to fail. We had the one of the uh, innovation directors at Chick Fil A as a past guest, and he talked about that. This was a real problem for their culture. I don't know if you've worked with them before. Yeah, um, from that. wonderful. Um, he said one of the key things that they did early on was they would have town halls with all the executives sharing all the screw-ups, all the mistakes they made along their way you know, in different leadership roles because no one gets everything right. And, and that helped give permission to everyone to go, oh, right, our leaders have made mistakes? Then I guess it's okay for me to try something new and I might make a mistake too.
1: Yeah, and our, our client at Adidas, Mick Lussier, the way he puts it is that the project funerals uh, not only help you celebrate that failure is an important part of the process, but they also help... Uh, put the idea to rest, allow people hmm. to move on. And then in his case, make sure that his innovator doesn't cross the street from Adidas to Nike and accept a different job. <laughs> really kind of showcasing that it's important and it didn't work, but we move on and this is life.
0: Right. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's part of the innovation process and certainly needs to be part of the culture. We're not celebrating the failure. We're celebrating what we learned and that this sure. is part of the process. This is what happens. So I love that. To, that is a good way to make that an element of the culture. So then, this kind of it looks like on your framework a three-part process, and I'm sure it's it's more iterative than just linear. Uh, but it starts with opportunity hunting. You want to tell us about that one?
1: Sure, so how do you get inspiration and a trend hunter, this is probably where we spend half of our time thinking about things because ideally, if you 're going to have your winning idea, you probably have to start with a hundred ideas and there's a lot of little subtleties to those awkward new ideas that cause smart people to dismiss concepts that are in their space so yeah, you can look at the quotes from every major telecom company when they were checking out the iPhone, and generally they all think that it's stupid. You can ask Smith Corona invented the laptop word processor, grammar checker, spell checker, but it looked kind of dumb because the typewriter was practical. Mm-hmm. So opportunity hunting is interesting because it's about gathering a lot of ideas, but really trying to push those awkward babies and thinking about how do you actually scan the ideas you have and recognize that it's not your first gut instinct to just look at something And throw it away. You really need to cut further. So the processes we use would start with a large collection of ideas. Let's say you found a hundred and then you look for the trends or patterns, but you have to recognize that the first patterns you see are the ones you wanted to see. That's what your brain was pre-wired for, and so you throw away those ideas and keep forcing yourself to mm. find different clusters, different consumer opportunities. And once you feel like you find uh, some opportunities that are interesting, then you can move to the next phase of actually trying to iterate prototypes. But there's a, a lot of different steps that can help increase your performance. And uh, I, I probably don't even do it justice when I try and say it in words because it's effectively the career of a hundred people at my company that spend all their time just trying to think of this one stage of the process but i'd say the simplest summary of it all is to say uh that you want to force yourself to keep reclustering and reclustering the same observations because your first instinct is generally a little bit tainted by what you've already Mm. experienced as a win in the past okay it strikes me
0: that a way to help that is to involve people that think differently than you uh what do you think yeah
1: So uh, there's actually a a variety of interesting things that we study in neuropsychology with myelin. And what happens is that as you get good at something, you build little myelin pathways in your brain and you become 100 times faster at whatever the thing is you're the best at. Uh My favorite exercise as an innovator is to ask people, what can you do with a paperclip? And you start coming it's the sim the alternative use case test for those that know it from the sixties. But in a given audience that I'm speaking to, I can always predict what they're gonna come up with, even in the right order, for a paper clip. They'll say, Oh, you can pick a lock, you can make it a, use it as a weapon, you can maybe trade it, you can use it for art, and you can make a necklace and you know, buy your wife something nicer. But I can predict what what ten to fifteen ideas they'll come up with. And yet a kindergarten kid can get to two hundred ideas. Huh. And I love that exercise. I usually end it by putting my little niece up and you can see her come up with 70 ideas that are obtuse. (laughs) But what it shows is that if I can predict what a group is going to come up with, the 10 to 15 ideas, it kind of wakes you up because that's just a paper clip. So Hmm. why am I so predictable with my 10 or 15 ideas on a paper clip when a kid isn't? And that's a paperclip, but you get to your career, your profession, and you're so good at making fast, quick decisions that you blind yourself to all of the other opportunities. So the way out is exactly what you suggested. How do I involve other people or how do I try different workshops to look at my problem from different perspectives so that I don't come up with the same 15 ideas in my career where it's actually more important than a paperclip? Right,
0: I love that paperclip example. Um, uh, Go ahead.
1: Try it in a group. It it repeats every time. You'll hear the same sort of ideas. It's almost hilarious after you do it a few times.
0: Yeah, and you need to bring a five year old to get some real insights. Absolutely. the, uh, the, the there's been this uh, the pizza delivery person analogy used in many places, um, and I have a a colleague who does a lot of consulting and innovation and has real world examples where this has happened where you know they're having the meeting they're kind of stuck and the pizza delivery person comes in with the pizza and says hey can you take a look at this you yeah, know this is what we're thinking about. And it. it's the pizza delivery person that says, well, have you done, you know, XYZ? It's like, wow, no one ever thought about that in this room, right? It's, sure, sure. Right? It's just a different, and even having that kind of uninformed perspective can help take you in new ideas. Yeah. So, okay, that's really good. Um, just to drill down on this just a tiny bit more, when it comes to opportunity hunting, I think uh, kind of the two quick things that come to mind for a lot of product managers is we're going to go to our customers, find out what problems they're having, right? We, we study them, and then we bring design insights to help solve their problem. Or we're going to look at what's already in the marketplace. Like I <clears throat> uh, just met a guy who designs toys, and uh, he has designed lots of toys over the probably last 30 years. And he, one of his inspirations is he just likes to go walk the aisles at toy stores and look for products that he knows are made inferiorly, inferiorly that he can make better. So kind of studying the competitors and seeing what we can do sure. better to offer value. Um, other areas real quick that we would go to for insights or maybe you would double yeah, so, down on uh, those.
1: I mean, what we've, what we've uh, sort of learned at Trend Hunter is that kind of similar to that myelin and Paperclip exercise is that you mm-hmm. study your own market so intensely and your own product so intensely that uh, unfortunately it can even become more difficult for you versus other people, mm-hmm. kind of talked about, to see opportunity really close to what's currently happening. So the key to getting inspiration then is to try and find what are the similar industries that are relatable to your industry, But um, maybe you just don't stare at. So if you are designing a mobile phone, cool. Let's spend some time hunting for inspiration in fashion. Uh, And if you are, uh, you know, in charge of making uh, a new cookie, cool. Let's go look at all the health trends and spend our whole time in a different space. And then you start to relate back and think of what you can do. Or to get yourself in a different perspective, we do a lot of simulations where you pick completely different companies and imagine how they would approach your industry. Mm -hmm. So let's say as an example, um, how would Google approach your market? Oh, well, Google would never enter our market. Cool. But let's pretend that ads were made illegal and they decided to pick 10 industries to sell products, which they could still do. And they bought your largest competitor. How would Google owning your largest competitor approach your market? What about Patagonia who thinks everything that you're doing is commercialized and terrible and they want purpose in life? How would Mm -hmm. they reinvent your market? And you go through a series of exercises like that where I can't get you entirely to look at your market differently unless I put you in a different position and that's the way you can do it.
0: Yeah, I love that. that, It's a good tip also from design thinking. And when I've been involved in design thinking workshops, we ask those kind of problems. Like, what would Google do if they were to make this product? How would Apple approach this? How would Risk Carlton approach this, right? Just Uh, different perspectives.
1: And and I'm going to anonymize them, but Mm -hmm. the quote that they gave me, uh, it's brand you love and know. But they said that they would always try and figure out why they're number two and they'd always ask all the people and they'd go even in their location and their stores and ask like, you know, how do we compare to the, the number one guys? How do, how do we compare? And they never got insight until they said, hey, what would happen if our competitor bought us? What are the first changes they would make? And all of a sudden, new ideas flood in. Oh, well, if they bought you guys, they would do this and this and this differently and this and this and this. So it's, it's just trying to find the clever ways to look at your problem from the outside.
0: That's a great question. I have to add that to my list of things. Sure. To, uh, n- new inspiration for groups. <laughs> okay, let's move on to rapid prototyping. This follows opportunity hunt- hunting. Or we move into rapid prototyping.
1: Yeah. So uh, for rapid prototyping, there's a couple of the key takeaways. One is that you want to be methodical and scientific about how you think about innovation. Uh, another though, that I like to use is that you should think about innovation the same way you think about your stock portfolio. Now I'm a little nerdy in that my background was finance. And so uh, my publisher always tells me like, don't go too heavy on the finance stuff. But here's some of the fun takeaways that I like. If you think about your stock portfolio, the market goes up or down. And when it goes down, you experience what's called the snakebite effect. It's a psychological effect where I lost money and now I become overly conservative because of the snakebite. And so then our tendency when times are bad is to get rid of all the high risk projects. So at Smith Corona, when it was 1991 and times were scary, they got rid of their experiments and computers. They were doing a joint venture with Acer, by the way. So they got rid of it. Three years later, the market rebound and and they're declaring bankruptcy. Huh. But if they thought about things like an innov- like a stock market portfolio, when times were bad, they would have hung on to the computers. Because just like your stocks, you know, well, you gotta keep the high-risk ones because when we bounce back, things change. On the opposite end of things, when you think about investing or gambling, if you have a really big win or your portfolio goes up a lot, there's a psychological effect called house's money. And it comes from a gambler who wins in the casino and you win big and you're up three times in the casino and now you're betting even bigger and you're buying stakes and you're, you know, you're going crazy because you're playing with the house's money. However, the market goes up and down, your gambling goes up and down, your innovation works or it doesn't. So when you were winning, you shouldn't have anteed up bigger. You should have been conservative with it. So bottom line is there's a lot that you can learn about innovation from how investing works and thinking about what you're doing kind of like a portfolio you want some a balance of high risk things you're trying so that you're always pushing towards the future some medium risk ideas and, and you want to still nurture your safe bets
0: okay so in that rapid prototyping typing space you're really kind of laying out this portfolio approach, Um, you know, there's other frameworks like the Three Horizons framework that talks about, you know, the stuff that's kind of further out, that's going to be the new things that we're not doing now, the stuff that's more adjacent to what we're doing. And then how do we just make what we have now better? It sounds like it's related to that, right? It's like, where are we going to make a few bigger bets, the high risk things? Sure. And the things that will stretch us and then just double down on what's working well now.
1: Yeah, and I kind of in that part of the book, the frameworks that we use in our workshops, it's two part. One is understanding the psychology of the investor. And the other is a circular framework, which is about uh, ideation, prototyping, measuring, refining, and, and which is a little bit more traditional of what mm-hmm. you would see. And we have some best practices there. But I think the new piece that kind of shapes people a bit different is the portfolio. Because what I find is that the most common thing we start to experience is that you're an innovator, you're an excited person, you bring your idea and then you can't get management buy-in or you can't get people to change and try your thing. So if you go to a CEO and you're you're positioning things a little bit more like a balanced stock portfolio, then you can push your higher risk bets through and you can kind of play the upside versus downside of what happens if we don't do this. Mm -hmm. So We go through the normal types of frameworks and processes, but I feel that's the bigger takeaway that a person could use to try to uh, make their big ideas happen.
0: Yeah, I I like that, right? This more portfolio approach to think about things a little more broadly, maybe a little bit further out, maybe a little bit more risky while we're still doubling down on what's working to kind of set that groundwork for when you present the idea and you run into the response. Well, that's not how we do things here. Sure, sure. We have to do things that are a little high risk and, and work towards the future. Right. Okay, and the uh, last part of that set in your framework is the infectious messaging. What a great phrase! Tell us about infectious messaging.
1: Well, um, you know, when Trend Hunter was brand new, this little 2005 startup, I was running innovation at a bank, and then I was coming home and working until 3 a.m. on this website. And because we were so early uh, and, and, and aggressively hunting trends, we, we grew very quickly and we you know, have three and a half billion views, but we got them quickly in a way where we were bigger than every newspaper on the planet and it was a team of seven of us. So all of our first clients ended up being in media and we spent a lot of time thinking about and helping them think about why were we getting that traffic with seven people And that led to a lot of experiments in how you think about framing your idea, largely on uh, um, noting that some ideas go viral and some don't. So what causes that? And ultimately, we boil it down to, well, yeah, there's the product or creation itself. That's one of the three elements. But there's also the medium of how you convey the message. And then there's also the the packaging of your story. So if we just uh, talk about those last two for the medium – you've got a great idea, but how do you convey it? There's an example I love, which is Josh Bell, who is the best violin player in the world. He plays a $15 million Stradivarius violin. So the Washington Post hires him to get him to do a free show for you playing a $15 million violin and his most technically complex piece. The question is, if you were Walking by, would you stop? Would you want to listen to him? Would you want to hear him? And everyone would say, yeah, I, I would like to see that. So they put him in a subway and asked him to play. And over the course of an hour, just seven people stopped of the thousands that walked by. And he made $35, most of which came from one woman who gave him $20 and said, hey, will you be here again next week? No, he's not. (laughs) Now, uh, what that goes to show you is he's the best in the world. When he's on stage, he makes $1,000 a minute. But if he is not packaged like he's the best in the world, then people don't stop. So when you think about your wonderful idea, making it less awkward, thinking of how you convey it, thinking of uh, how it presents itself, it can be more important than the idea, even if that hurts to hear. And the final part then on a well-packaged story is we spent a lot of time studying uh, in in what articles and what headlines go viral and which ones don't. And we've published now 400,000 articles. And in there, there's a lot of experiments. Some get a million views and some get a thousand. What makes the difference? And we've boiled it down to three things you need to think about in the seven words or less that describe your product. You need to be simple, direct, and supercharged, simple because simple messages sort of supercharge word of mouth. Direct is where most people get things wrong. Direct means you need to convey why I should choose you, and and people get too descriptive when they talk about their idea. But you need to explain why I should choose you. And the last one is supercharged, which kind of means uh, delightful words, words that are fun to say. So I'll put that in an example for you. At the uh, Fleur de Lis Restaurant in the Mandalay Bay Casino. They have a burger. It is uh, a luxurious burger, the most luxurious in the world. Do you want it? Are you interested? Sure. Flirtly? yeah, but you're medium interested. Fleurily, Fleur Burger. It's called cool title. Sounds luxurious. Got it. But what if I uh, put that against our framework? that's not really simple. I don't know what a Fleur Burger is. It's not direct because I don't exactly get it, but maybe it's supercharged. Maybe the word sounds fun. So it's one out of three. If I instead told you this is the world's most expensive hamburger, well, now you're more interested because I gave you a simple message and it's direct. I showed you why you should be interested. It's the world's most expensive hamburger. It might not be supercharged still, but you're really interested. So what if I call this what it is. This is a $5,000 hamburger. This hamburger costs $5,000. After I tell you that, you will remember for the rest of your life, you know, how expensive was this? $5,000. And that's a message that's simple, direct, and supercharged. Now I'm giving you kind of a, a, a simple example there, but the point would be that using that sort of lens, you can come up with the seven words or less, which cause your product to be more likely to go viral, whether that's among your managers who you're trying to get buy-in from, your end customer, uh, you know, or even just uh, your internal team.
0: That's really powerful. I love that framework. So the guidelines there were, keep it short, seven words, after Mm -hmm. all these experiments you've done, and then three parts. It should be simple, it should be direct, and it should be supercharged, as as in kind of engaging. And, And I think some people might confuse the direct and supercharged a little bit and try to make it cute. And they they lose the, it's not simple and direct anymore, right? Right.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny because actually our... Our website then, when I thought of TrendHunter in its early days, I probably spent seven years trying to come up with my own seven words or less. And I mm-hmm. obsess about it because this is what we spend our time doing. So why can't I figure it out? And for a long time, we just said it's the number one trend website. I read a book by Seth Godin. It says, find out where you're number one. was the book, The Dip. I liked that. And so it said number one trend website. But if you put it against the framework, it fails on direct because it doesn't explain why, should, why you should choose it. Do you Mm -hmm. need a trend website? I don't know. doesn't really sound like it's something that you need. So we spent a lot of time thinking about it and eventually rebranded to uh, find better ideas faster. Better ideas through science, faster through crowdsourcing, cool. But now it's a little bit more broadly applicable and you get what we were actually trying to do. So the Mm -hmm. thing I'd encourage for anyone listening is if you think about your own career, whether you're a consultant or an innovator, what are the seven words or less that explain why I should choose you and if you think about your new product or service, what are the seven words or less that get me super excited and, and help me know, why, you know what would be so interesting about what it is you're creating?
0: Yeah. And I love the change in that and what you were just describing too, was the first tagline was very descriptive of the, of the organization, right? Number one. Right. The second tagline is very descriptive of, of how and kind of even implies who you're serving, right? Find better ideas faster. It's like, oh, that's me. I, I need that. Sure. So it's more customer-focused, too. I, I think that's really engaging.
1: And, and when I run people through it, what I find is that as a, as a workshop, you're generally pretty good at giving me the seven words or less that describe the favorite product you go to get in the store. Mm-hmm. That's fine. But when you relate it back to yourself, your personal career, or your big product or idea, you'll find this one can really stress you out uh, But it, because it's tough to sort of summarize and you've thought about things in one way. So another fun workshop would be that you take two minutes and give me, we took the Everyday Innovator blog. Give me all the things I should listen to the Everyday Innovator for. And you, you list all the words. Say, oh, we're innovative. We're captivating. We had special guests. And you go through all the things. And you do this for two minutes with your own product or service. Then the exercise is, cool, all those words are now banned. Wow. Now tell me how you're going to do it. Oh, and then you're forcing yourself to get out of that box, escaping that myelin trap, like the paperclip that we talked about, and you'll find come up with something new. We're the Netflix for innovation, or whatever it might be. Uh, you know, if you did the exercise, but the point would be that you want to reframe by forcing yourself to think of things differently.
0: That is a perfect exercise to lead people with, and I encourage everyday innovators to take that on and think about how you might reframe uh, maybe with the work you do personally, your personal brand, and then, of course, for your products as well. Wonderful framework. Uh, Really appreciate all that information. So, again, it's the ability to change, culture of innovation, and then the opportunity hunting, rapid prototyping, and infectious messaging. As listeners know, we love innovation quotes around here. Uh, Do you have a quote for us and tell us why you chose that one?
1: Well, I actually have two and I'll explain why. Uh, whenever I think about my favorite little quote or how I sign a book, when someone asks me, I write break rules hmm. because I think that's required. So because you asked me for one quote, I thought I should give you two. <laughs> sure. Why not? <laughs> so uh, break rules. And then the other one I like to say, which isn't the quote, but it's that your idea is so you have so many great ideas that are close within your grasp. So to get there, push harder, act sooner and never give up.
0: Excellent. Those are good quotes. Uh, Break rules, that's how we do new things. And we need to realize there's things that we can act on so many great ideas. For people that want to find out more about your organization and obviously your new book, how can we make that happen?
1: Well, Trend Hunter is the place that you would go uh, and we'll give you a link that can give you some special extras that you okay. can follow up on. And then the other part would be uh, the new book is Create the Future coming out March 10th. And uh, that, I guess, would be findable by either just going to Amazon or if you go to Create the Future createthefuturebook.com and that would have the info uh, on our own website.
0: Excellent. And all those links will be in the show notes to make it easy for people to get there. And I appreciate you providing us the special link with some extra resources. So that would be great to find in the show notes. Jeremy, I appreciate all this great information. The new book, I think, sounds really insightful. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on the finished version. I was able to look at a preview of PDF version. And this is going to be a good resource for us as product managers and innovators. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator. This is where product leaders and managers make their move to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products that customers do what? They love. Find the written discussion, those show notes with that special bonus question answered from Jeremy at the theeverydayinnovator.com slash 273. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit TheEverydayInnovator.com.